ever been surprised in your life? Well, we can be surprised by little things and big things. And some of those things can be, ah, that's so exciting. It's so surprised, so surprised. And then there are times that you have this, oh, that just surprises me. So there's different kinds of surprises. A while back, I was sitting in my office, and Nick was in there. We were talking, and this sweet face pops her head around. It's Carmen. Everybody knows Carmen's sweet. And she says, will you do a testimony at the women's retreat? And that took me by surprise. And as I was about to open my mouth, this voice came forth, she'll do it. That was from Nick. And I just stood there with my, I was staring at Carmen. I don't even know what to say. And she says, oh, well, you can pray about it. But Gwen and I already have. So what was I supposed to do? Say no? So here I am. Surprises. I had one of those at 4 a.m. one morning. The phone rang. And when you're startled like that, your mind goes to places you don't want it to go. So I answer the phone, and a recording comes on. This is the Carrollton Police Department. And you have a call from, she states her name, Kristen Brennan. That's my daughter. And I said, yes, I will. She says, Mom, I've been arrested. Well, that'll take your breath away. I said, well, first of all, I said, are you okay? My second question was, why did you get arrested? She says, well, I was driving home, and I was stopped because of my tags on my car. But as they stopped her, they smelled marijuana. Now, she says later that she hadn't smoked in a while, but the, the smell lingers. And if you've ever smelled it, it is very distinguishable. So they decided to search her car, and when they did, they found a small amount of crystal meth. She said, but mom, it was just a small amount. Just like if that was normal. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Now, you cannot have a long conversation with someone that's talking to you at the Carrollton Police Department because your time is up. So I had to hang up. So what do you do at 4.05? But sit on your bed and cry. And pray. And ask God for strength and for peace. Well, the peace came. The Holy Spirit came. And he said to me, now remember, Rebecca, you have a good friend on the Carrollton Police Department that you went to high school with. What a blessing. Because I said, okay, I can call him first thing in the morning and find out what comes next. I don't know anything about this process. And that was the only way I could close my eyes and try to go back to sleep. I want to share with you three words. I'm going to do my notes like this so I won't have to keep going back. I want to share with you three words in their deep, deep meanings that encouraged me through this whole ordeal. 
And I hope that it will inspire and encourage you as well if you ever have to go through any kind of difficult situation. When you walk into this building, every time you walk in, you see these three words. Can you guess what they are? Anyone? Say it out loud. Faith, hope, and love. That's what I'm going to talk to you about today. Hebrews 1, 11, 1 and 2 says, The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The fact, act of faith is what distinguishes our ancestors, and they set them above the crowd. By an act of faith, I believe that when I had children, I prayed for them when they were born, that I was going to be able to raise them in a Christian home, and that they were going to end up being the person God wants them to be. I still believe that. As parents, sometimes we feel like we don't do a very good job, and we beat ourselves up for that. And if you're there, don't do it, because God will always get you through and see you through those times. I just didn't realize how much prayer was going to be needed for Christmas. (laughs) Now, I never lost faith in God, but I'm going to tell you, I got really weary. And I... And a lot of people almost lost faith in Kristen, too. And that's just, it's, it's easy to do that when somebody is, is living their life the way they shouldn't be living it. So my beautiful and outgoing daughter was unhappy and struggling, obviously. In 2007, she lost a baby girl after 24 hours. In 2009, she gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. But she went into postpartum. So therefore, her addiction just got worse. Just worse and worse. And so that was two and a half years ago that this happened. Just two and a half years ago. So my journey begins two and a half years ago, although it it started a lot earlier than that. But I'm going to concentrate on the last two and a half years. Because after this, she was hospitalized, and she was in rehab at least twice since that call that I got from the police department. But here's where hope comes from, comes in. Here's our hope. Hebrews six nineteen. If you're ever in my office, you're going to see a painting that my niece gave me, and it's an anchor, and it says, Hebrews six nineteen. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. I want to give this verse to you in the message because I love the way the message presents this verse. We who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God where Jesus is, running on ahead of us and taking up that permanent post as high priest for us. I love the way that that is stated. During her rehab, one of her rehabs, 
a psychiatrist finally was able to diagnose Kristen with bipolar disorder. Okay, this explains a lot. Over the last several years, she had been with her addictions. Now, she has an addictive personality, so she has that predisposed thing about addictions. But you put a bipolar disorder in there, and your moods are like this. And she used to always say, Mom, I'm just trying to feel normal. I just want to feel normal. And so she would drink, or she would take pills, or she would just one thing after the other to the point where she couldn't get her Adderall anymore, and she was buying it on the street. She was buying so much that it wasn't affecting her much anymore. So a neighbor of hers said, oh, there's something that's even cheaper and better than that. Guess what that is? Methamphetamines, crystal meth. So there was her beginning of her crystal meth days, and it got really bad. She would, sometimes you never knew she she was on it, and sometimes you could tell she was getting a little irritable, or she would crash and she would sleep for a long time. But with this hope, even during this time, even though I knew she was like this, I had hope. Now, some people see... Hopelessness, that's, that's not there. And sometimes you see an endless hope. And that's where I chose to be. I needed to keep hope alive. So I am going to say my hope is endless with her. I am not going to stop having hope that we're going to find the answers to this. I went to support groups. I learned everything I could about the drug what it could do, and what it, what it, it, I just learned everything I could. I did not keep this a secret from my friends, and I had a lot of prayer support, and I, every time Kristen was in a crisis, I would get on the computer, and I would say, Kristen is in crisis, please pray for her, and publicly right now, I want to thank all my friends out here, you know who you are, that prayed for Kristen and myself and my family during this during this time. I appreciate that so much from the bottom of my heart. I was keeping Kristen from losing her job. She was living with me at the time, and there was times that she couldn't get up out of bed, and I'd get in there and it's time to get up. Come on, get up. I ironed her clothes. I put breakfast in front of her face. I did everything I could to get her to her job and to keep her going. Now, some people would say, Rebecca, you're enabling her. And I had people tell me, I think you're enabling her. Now, I never gave her money to buy her stuff ever, but I was keeping her alive. And it was so important for her to keep her job. Now, it's an amazing miracle that she never lost her job. Never. And that's a story in itself, but not for this morning. But thank God that he called me to that place. Because I would tell Kristen, she would say, Mom, how do you know what your call in life is? And I said, well, I've had a lot of calls, but right now, 
my call is to help you get through this. And we're going to get through this together, whatever it takes. So this is where the love of a parent kicks in. There's your love. You love your children so much or your family member so much, you're not going to give up. And so in our love chapter, it says, love is patient and love is kind. And this is what I try to convey to Kristen every day. I love you no matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter what risky behaviors you have displayed, no matter how many accidents you've had, I don't care. I love you. When she was crashing or when she was irritable, I was patient. I never lost my cool, and that's only by the grace of God. Because when you have someone that is taking drugs... You don't know from one moment to the next how they're going to react to what you say or what you do. (laughs) And it was very hard, and I had to control myself. But God helped me through that. Only by the grace of God, he got me through that. Love never fails, and it never gives up. It puts up with anything, and it trusts God always. Jesus never gave up on me. So why would he give up on Kristen? You see, God loves waits. God loves Kristen more than I do. He, she's his child just like I am. He was just waiting for her. When a last-ditch effort, Leanne, now Leanne and Bob, Bob's my, my husband and her stepfather, they were on the brink of just giving up. It's really hard for them. It's hard for anybody. It was hard for me, but I just could not give up. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't, and I think many in this room couldn't do it with their child either. You just, you just don't give up. In a last day for, to save Kristen from herself, Leanne showed her a picture of her and her, her father who had just died a few months before. So let's throw that in the mix. Her dad died. And in this picture was a very happy time for Kristen with her dad. And Leanne said, Kristen, here's half my family. One of them can't, one of them can't come back, but one of them can. And Kristen says, it was the first time in my life during this time that I, I looked outside of myself and assessed the damage that I had caused around me. And I said, okay. She knew within herself that it was time to go back to rehab. This will be her third time. And each time, she would be okay for 30 days, and then she'd go right back. And there's a reason for that. The reason is spiritual. And so she finally got on a plane. We put her on a plane the next morning to Florida. Leanne found her a rehab on the beach a condo on the beach where there was only 14 people in the recovery. So she thought, okay, I I can do that. (laughs) But the first day or so, she didn't want to be there. Of course you don't. You're, you're crashing. You're, you're getting off your drug. You're having to deal with deep issues that she didn't want to ever deal with before. 
but she stuck it out. And I'm, I'm thankful for her job because that was the insurance that we were able to use. I'm grateful for the doctor that was up there because the insurance company, they don't, that, they don't, people need to be in rehab a lot longer than they allow them to be. And this doctor would get on the phone and, to the insurance company for one more week and say, if you let this girl go home, she is going to die. So they would give him one more week. So we had 60 days. Praise God for 60 days. Because this rehab made her go through the 12 steps. Made her do it. Not any other rehab was ever, ever be, they did not do that. They would introduce you to somebody from AA, and they would say, when you get out of here, here's some names for you to go. That's it. But this place, they made you go through it. And when she got halfway through, she had a spiritual awakening. Praise God. This is what happens when you allow God to take over. And this is what she did. And so when she got home, they suggested, don't go back home. Don't go live with your mom. So she went to a halfway house. She lived there a year. And I'm happy to say that she's in her own apartment now after two and a half years. It took a long time. It took a long time. And I just want to end by saying this. This is something that Kristen put on her Facebook not too long ago. If you're friends with my daughter, you know that every once in a while she'll post things to her other friends or family members that she knows is struggling with addiction because she wants to get the word out there. She feels like she has such a purpose in her life now, and this she knows she'll be in recovery for the rest of her life. She's on her medication. She went to therapy. She's done everything she needed to do so that she can help other women, other people that are going through this. So this is what she says, and I'm just going to end with this. My mom loved me into sobriety with patience, prayer, and a never-give-up attitude. I wish many of my fellow addicts that are still drowning in active addiction could have the same kind of support. It's a blessing to have a family that sticks with you until the miracle can happen. 696 days later, she's still right beside me supporting my continued recovery. I love you, Mom. Yeah. On April 28th of this month, she will get her two-year chip. Now, praise God. Thank you. Wow, that was powerful. I feel like we can't um, start the rest of this until we spend a little bit of time in prayer. Rebecca, thank you for that. Um, Here's what I think was happening in the spirit. God was doing some healing in people's hearts. God was encouraging some people who are walking through these type of issues with uh, maybe not just addiction, but an adult child or a, a child in high school maybe who is wandering 
who is uh, willfully living a life that's not pleasing to God and not pleasing to their parents. Maybe there are some women in here right now who are struggling with some type of addiction that is knocking you off your feet. And here's the other group I thought about. There are probably young mothers in here who are scared snotless now, aren't you? Um, you know, I, I have a blog, um, and, and I write mostly about my daughter's death and how God has uh, brought victory and healing and, and has moved me from a time of mourning into a time of dancing. But I recently wrote about fear. And for some of you in this room, I think fear just gripped your heart. And don't let Satan do that. Listen to the victory in that story. Listen to the victory. I, um, I just, what I wrote in my blog was when Bethany, our daughter who's now in heaven, was small, I lived in fear all the time. Um, I... I lived in fear uh, the day she was born or the week that she was born. She, she was jaundiced. She was a preemie, and they kept her under lights. And I was afraid because I couldn't see her. They kept her in the nursery, and I had chosen in-room, um, whatever that was called back then. Um, and then one day, uh, Bethany's first day of kindergarten, she got on the bus with the big kids, you know, those big third graders. And... Um, it was her first day of school, and the bus pulled up, and Bethany didn't get off at the end of the day, and I flipped out. And as the bus was pulling away, I could see little tiny Bethany standing, looking out the window. She had tried to get past some bigger kids, and they wouldn't let her out. So I booked it all the way to the next bus stop. I'm running. You know, it was a couple blocks away, and she got off. She was fine, but I was petrified. And then I, I thought about all those other firsts in my daughter's life, you know, first date, first, uh, first drive in the car, first, um, first prom, first, um, all of this, first how I lived in fear. And it wasn't until I was at my daughter's accident site that I realized I wasn't going to see Bethany anymore. I wouldn't. She was out of my sight but never out of my mind. And God came in that moment and said, fear won't take Bethany from you. She's always with you. She's, um, she, you're in a forever relationship with her. God didn't give you this child for it to be over at this point at 29. Um, God didn't give you, Rebecca, your daughter, for you to walk away and say, this time, it's enough. This is the last time. Um, I had many years with Bethany as a high school student and college student where she wandered. And um, I agree with you about not giving up. However, for me, I became kind of the crazy mom, you know, who was out looking for her. And, and uh, I remember reading the prodigal son story and, and talking to God and going, yeah, you and me, we are that father, aren't we? I mean, I'm just like you in this situation. And God said, you are nothing like me, Laura, in this situation. <laughs> You're a crazy mom. And, um, 
he gave me this picture. The, the word for Lara was, you're a pig pen picker-upper. And um, not only would I walk with Bethany in her struggles, but, but I never allowed her during those early years to actually live in her pig pen. I would, I would be in the pig pen with her, and I, and I got this picture of myself sweeping up corn cobs and poop and, um, you know, decorating with some of the leftover food and saying, you know, we can make this pig pen fine, honey. You, don't, you know, you don't have to do anything to get out of it. I'm with you here. And, uh, and I know that's not, that's not what you were doing, but for me, I was always cleaning up Bethany's mess. And God said to me, go back home, Laura, and wait. Just wait. I am making Bethany who she is and who she will be. And I will bring her home. And he did, but I lived in fear for so long, it was amazing at her death and knowing that she was right with God, knowing that she was in eternity in the arms of Jesus, all of the fear was swept away. But for way too long, I lived in that fear that something would happen, something would break apart. This, you know, even in the good times when Bethany was right. Um, in her early 20s. You know, I was always waiting for that other shoe to drop. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I know she won't stay like this. And, and when God moved in her life, he really moved in her life, much like your daughter's story. So if you want me and the rest of the group to pray over you, whether you're struggling, a child struggling, whether you just snapped into fear mode, over your own children. Would you stand up? And we're going to pray as a group for all of us who that testimony brought just a little bit of trepidation. For instance, saying, I would, I used to listen to stories like that and think, oh God, I, I don't ever want to go through something like that. I, shallow is kind of my spiritual gift I would like to have, Lord. <laughs> Can I just, shallow is good. Shallow, you know, sort of just happy, happy times. That's, that's the gift I want. So um, stand with me if you want to be prayed over, and we'll all pray as a group. If anybody just wants to put a hand on a shoulder of somebody who's, who's walking either in fear or struggle or has a family member that's walking in addiction or wandering from the Lord. I'm going to give you a moment of silence, and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for that testimony. We thank you for the lives that are involved in that story. Lord, together we lift Kristen up too. Father, continue the good work you're doing in her life as we take her through the process of being clay. Lord, I thank you for the mothers in this room who are struggling with children, who are wandering. 
Father God, come to them in gentleness and in tenderness and wrap your arms around them and continue to whisper into their hearts that, that they are yours and their children are yours. Father, you are making their children into something wonderful. Help them to step out of the way and allow you to do the work that only you can do. Father, I pray for those young moms who thought, oh my goodness, I can't do this. Lord, take away fear. Lord, we claim that we will not walk in fear, but we will walk in perfect love. Because your perfect love will cast out all of that fear. There is too much to do. Sitting in fear. And so, Lord, we claim your love today. Father, we claim the faith and the hope that will walk with us through all of these trials that we'll be walking through in our lives. And we claim our children's lives, Jesus. Lord, we believe that they will be in eternity with us. And so, Father, we will wait as you bring them home. Lord, we thank you for each woman in this room. And whatever they're walking in right now, Lord, would you come and whisper in their heart that you are there with them. You're a good potter, and you have good plans for their lives. And whatever trials and difficulties come, you are there also. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tissues, blow your nose now. According to this, we have 15 minutes for this session. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not so. So go with me on this. Okay, I've had my first person asked me to fill in the blanks. We have some, some uh, secondary ed teachers here, I'm sure. Okay, um, the potter, the very important one on session one was the potter is in contact with the clay from the very beginning, even before you know your clay. While you're being woven together in the depths of the earth, the potter is in contact with you. Our purpose as, as creation, and that's, that's um, if you're a good Lutheran, you know that, it's to glorify God and live in fellowship with him forever. That's over on that second page. That's our purpose as clay, is to live in fellowship. The next thing is God provided. This is what God provided Adam and Eve. He gave them a task he gave them sustenance and nourishment and a beautiful atmosphere. He gave them paradise. You can fill in any of these that you want. It's not important. He gave them fellowship and his presence. And he gave them a choice. That's the big thing we're going to talk about here. He gave them a choice. Let me move this. So we're going to talk about the choice. 
He said, you can eat from every other tree of the garden. You can do all sorts of things. You can go mountain climbing. You can swim. You can do this. But please just don't touch this one thing. And if you've got kids, you know exactly what happened. But that choice wasn't just about looking at a piece of fruit and thinking it looked good. It was a choice between staying in fellowship with God or walking away and choosing their own way. And I believe that that's exactly what they did. They chose their own way. God took an incredible risk in allowing us to choose fellowship. Every single one of us has had that choice. This morning you chose fellowship because you showed up today. But every day of our lives, we choose, do we walk in fellowship with God the Father, the heavenly potter, or do I go my own way, make my own decisions? And, and that's essentially the definition of sin. It's called moral autonomy. I decide what's best for my life. I decide what feels good, what's right. If you, if you know anything about culture, that's pretty much where we are now. There's no absolute truths in the world today anymore. It seems like if it's right for you, meh, then it's right. Don't tell anybody else what's right because it's whatever they think is right. And so Adam and Eve chose. Now, I love to think about what was going through Eve's mind when she took that fruit. I think one of them, as a woman, one of them was, you know, I think God's probably not telling us everything. I think there's something that he knows that we don't know and I like to know and and, I, and, I, and part of that, I think, God put into the woman. I like to call it the, um, oh, I like to call it, what do I like to call it? The questioning gene, the curiosity gene. Don't you think women were born with curiosity gene? I don't think men were. They really don't. I mean, that's why Adam said, well, God said so, okay, whatever, and walked on. And Eve's going, no, no, there's more to this story. We always want to know the rest of the story, don't we? Or, or that somebody knows a secret we might not know, and so we work on trying to find out what that is. We ask our husbands lots of questions. Have they ever said, well, my husband will say, I gave you my answer. I don't know anymore. You can continue with this line of questioning, but I don't know anymore. And he will say that multiple times throughout a week. Or here's the other thing about men. They don't ask questions. Don't ever send a husband to the doctors with your children. They won't ask questions. No. They don't ask questions when you give them a shopping list. So they just come back with whatever they think you meant by that. And it's usually not the right thing. They just don't have the curiosity gene. I think Eve was born with that, but her curiosity gene went awry. Had too many chromosomes or something. I don't know. Adam's sin, I think, looked more like this. There's Eve standing there without her fig leaves. She says something looks good, and he thinks to himself, okay, now I know God the creator said we probably shouldn't. I never asked why before this day, but... That looks really good, and that citron or pomegranate or whatever it was looks good too. I think I'll do that. Let's do, I'm just going to step away from what God has for me just now because that looks really good. Immediate gratification, I think, might be, might be more what that was. But both of them knew 
whether it was Eve thinking God had something she wanted or Adam thinking, oh, what's the big deal? I really want her too. Both of them made a choice, a willful choice, to be resistant to the hand of God. A willful choice to step out of fellowship with God. And ever since then, so have we. Well, the neat thing about potter and pottery and clay is that every book I read, they talk about how clay is a resistant kind of substance. It constantly is resistant to what the potter's trying to do with it. And that's the fun of pottery is to get that clay to do what you want, to get it into the right place that it needs to be. So I believe that's what God does with us. Let's see, if I filled in our sin is moral autonomy also. It's choosing our own way and believing what we want is better than God's plan for our lives. It's our desire to sin, to be comforted, to uh, medicate, to, to be angry, to all of those things that we call sin is us saying, I know what the law says. I know what God wants me to do, but in this moment, at this time, what I want is better. And so we step out of fellowship with God when we choose that. All right, so I filled in all your blanks. Let's go to the next page. Now, this is fascinating. In clay, as I was studying, I found out there's primary clay and secondary clay. Almost all clay that's used in pottery today is secondary clay. So what is the difference between these two clays? Primary clay is clay that when you dig it up out of the earth, it's exactly where it was formed. Now, there's primary clay in lots of places all over the world one of which is Iraq, which may very well have been where the Garden of Eden was. My husband was, is still in the military, um, which really infuriates me when I go someplace and I show my military card and they ask about us being retired. I want to say, Do I look like I'm retired. No, my husband is active duty. That's just what, you know, it's sort of like getting a senior coffee at McDonald's when you're not really that age. It's a rough thing. Um, <laughs> So he was over in Iraq, and he said, it's all primary clay over there. It looks like sand, but it's really a fine powdery dust that's clay. And the interesting thing about it, well, he said it gets everywhere. It's in every orifice in your body. It's in your, your clothes. It's in your bed sheets or your, your blankets, whatever they had over there. It's in your food. It's clay that you just, you're, it's in your mouth all the time. And he said, when it rains over there, it becomes like glass. And he said, we had more accidents with our Humvees and with our tanks because the clay got wet and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't break on that clay. It was, it's not like sand and it just goes down through. It, it becomes like a, like a glass surface and it's, it's ready to be molded. So that's primary clay. But most potters can't find primary clay so they use secondary clay. Now let me give you the definition of what secondary clay is in one of the books. Secondary clay is clay that was formed and then moves because of one reason or another to a place far from where it was formed. 
And when it moves, it picks up objects, debris, foreign matter. Here's what the book said. Most clay that's used today is secondary clay. When a potter uses this kind of clay, he must refine it before he can work with it. The farther the clay's traveled from its primary source, the more refining is necessary. Anybody traveled far from where God formed you? There may be many contaminants. This is the pottery book talking. The potter takes the clay to his workshop and allows it to dry. He allows it to rest. He manually removes the the visible rocks, the roots, the trees, or the twigs, and the leaves. Anybody remember what Adam and Eve picked up right after they started moving? They put on fig leaves. The very beginning of what we put on to try and make up for moving away from God's presence and God's fellowship, as we do... As we move as secondary clay, we just start grabbing at things and saying, well, this will help. I feel this loss. I feel this emptiness. I feel this hole inside of me. What can I I grab? What can I put on? What What can I take? Or possibly some of us as secondary clay have not only moved our own way away from the presence of God, but people have picked us up and thrown us in a direction thrown us to another place where we've grabbed up something else and we've put that on to try and get rid of the pain and the heartache of being secondary clay. This is what it says about the potter. He takes everything other than clay away before he can really begin to make and mold and form. And so the potter does all kinds of interesting things to get rid of the impurities and the brokenness and the pain and all of those things that, you know, all of us do this. We we collect so much stuff around us that we can't even tell that the potter is there holding us, supporting us, moving us, bringing us into his presence because we've got all this gunk that we've collected. Here's what it says. In the book... Impurities in the clay don't disqualify it for use, but it does cause shrinkage and adjustment problems. You can fill that in. I think there might be a spot for that. Impurities in the clay, it doesn't disqualify you for God using you and changing you, but it sure does cause adjustment problems, doesn't it? There's that much more work that the heavenly potter has to do in our lives. So a good potter will pick up the clay that he's gotten, knowing that it's secondary with twigs sticking out, and leaves crumbled up, dead bugs, you name it, all kinds of impurities in our lives. And he begins very carefully to pull out those impurities. And then what's really interesting is a good potter, I don't know what this means, lady, but he can smell what the impurities are. He knows his clay that well, that he can look at it, look at the colors, look at the smell, look at the texture, and say, oh, I I know what this clay needs. This clay 
it has some impurities that are water-soluble. So I'm going to dip this clay in water. And I'm going to let it soak overnight and let all of those impurities come to the top. I'll dump it out and, and let it soak again and soak again. There's other kinds of impurities. There are granular impurities in clay. See, you're going to walk away from here knowing more about clay than you ever wanted to know. Now, this one is not so fun. Some of you may feel like you've had this kind of process. This one, the potter takes the whole thing through a sieve and just grinds it and grinds it and grinds it until all of the the yucky stones and things are left and pure, fine, primary clay is left. Then there's organic impurities that happen. Really what this means is it's just immature clay. And immature clay can't be molded and formed the way the potter wants to use it. Oh, we could make some some small little things with it, but the potter has a much more grander plan for his clay. And so he allows this, uh, this organic impurity just sit and wait. And the whole time, it's still in the potter's workshop. The potter still has his hands on it, but he's allowing it to age. Well, I thought about people in Scripture. Well, the water impurity, I think maybe Jonah <laughs> got dipped in the water for a couple days. He had some impurities that God wanted to work out of him. And so God said, you get the water treatment. Maybe some of us have, have gotten the water treatment And God has begun to take out those impurities in our life so that the rest of the plan can happen. And I thought about about maybe Saul, who became Paul. I think he got the, uh, the granular treatment where he was put through a sieve. Maybe some of us have have been ground and pushed through a sieve and all those rocks and things have been pulled out of our life. I mean, he got knocked off a horse. He was blinded. He, you know, I mean, this man was killing Christians. So he needed some kind of a big <laughs> impurity treatment. Um, I'm pretty sure nobody in this room has done that. So I don't think that your impurity treatment will, um, will have to be quite as stringent. Then there's the organic, just immature clay. Anybody feel like they're immature clay? I think that half the time that, you know, like, my mouth, I say things I wish I had never said. Or, you know, I treat family members like, what, am I the child in this family or what? Why am I saying this? I can, I can feel myself. I know I'm saying these words, but I want to stop and I can't. I think Peter maybe had that kind of a, of, of a thing going on. And Jesus, you know, when he said, you're the rock, Peter, I'm sure he's thinking, mm, okay, I'm saying this, but I know I'm talking in the future. Or even John Mark, when, when Paul said, I don't even want him to be a part of my ministry anymore. And, and he and Barnabas had a huge fight over this one young man who ends up just becoming this wonderful godly man that Paul asks to come see him later in his life. I mean, we've watched in Scripture, and you've watched in your own life, what God does, the, the length and depth that our potter will go through to get rid of those things that, that keep us from sensing his presence. Maybe you've walked through a situation where you know for a fact God has taken things out of your life. God is 
pulling out twigs out of your life or rocks or impurities. And, and at the time you thought, God is not there. Curse God and die. Like Job's wife said. But in reality, all of that that's being pulled away has been God himself as the potter saying, you have collected so much stuff that you're not sensing my hands anymore. You don't even know that I'm the potter in your life. And so this needs to go. Maybe, maybe it's finances, like we heard last night. Or, or maybe it's a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. And God says, this relationship needs to go because you're not sensing me anymore. Or think about it. Write down maybe in your notes what it is that you think God is saying. This needs to go because, because it's ruining your life because you don't sense that I'm holding you anymore because all you can feel around you are these things that you've taken on that are not of me. I'm looking for fill in the blanks. The potter uses different processes for refining. So right now we're on that circle and we're in the refining part. So God, the potter, will systematically clear or take away everything between you, the clay, and his hands as the potter. I listed a couple things. Sometimes it's relationships, like it with Isaiah. It, was, um, it wasn't until King Uzziah died that he actually saw the Lord. Sometimes it's thought patterns, like we talked about just a little bit ago, that fear that we will cling to because that fear is what keeps us vigilant. That fear is what keeps us ever watching for things that could go wrong. And God says, I'm taking that from you. You don't need that any longer. It's come between me and you. Sometimes it's material things. Sometimes it's wrong concepts. We think certain things that we think maybe we learned in church or we read in scripture, and it isn't true. I, I believe in scripture, all the way through the gospels, Jesus is knocking down wrong thinking in the disciples. Knocking down thinking like we're the only ones that know the truth. We're the only ones that really have it going on. And, and um, Jesus says, that's not true. There are others. I have, I have other people other than you. You're not, here's a wrong thinking. I am the only one who can do all of this work. There is no one else that can do this. If I didn't do it, the entire universe would fall apart. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. You get a timeout for that thinking. I'm going to raise up other people to do this. No, you're not the only person in your house that can put away the dishes. No, you're not the only one in the church can do all the work that you're doing. No, you're not the only one at your job who gets to do all of the work that's out there. That is wrong thinking. And so Jesus will say, or God the potter will pull those things away from us and say, time out, this is a rest period for you. I'm going to use some of my ways of taking out impurities. See, they're not just sins. They, they may not be sins. They may be good, but not best. And so Jesus will begin, or God the potter will begin to pull these things out of our life. He removes everything that comes between him and you. Now take a moment. What is that in your life right now? Surely there's something. 
What is that one area of your life that God is saying, time out, rest period, I'm going to do my work in your life. Take this one thing out of your life, and you'll be able to sense that I am here, that I am with you. Now, this is really neat. Before you were a Christian, or those of you who are thinking today, I kind of like the singing here. I kind of like the time I'm with these other women, but I'm not really sure about the whole God part. God's doing that in your life. He's doing that to me. Even though I've been around this process many times, he's still taking out things that get between me and him. But if you're that person, he's taking all these things away so that for the first time you'll know who the Heavenly Father is and that he's good and trustworthy and loving and he has an incredible process that he wants to walk with you through for the rest of your life so that when eternity comes and we're with him forever, none of those things will come with us. We come as primary clay someday. You know, for now, Jesus is the only primary clay. And we take these things with us. But someday, we will be whole. We will, we will have new bodies. And, and we will be pure clay without all of these extra. You see the twigs hanging off of me? I see some leaves out there in your hair. Someday. It won't be so. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about, we actually are going to break now. I found a way around this. We're going to break into our small groups, and I think you'll get more directions. We're going to talk about wedging when we come back. Not wedgies, <laughs> but wedging. And that's that process where it's sort of like kneading dough. If you've ever uh, seen in pottery where they, they just take the, they take the clay and they just keep pulling it around and around, usually in a circular fashion. Sometimes it's end over end. We're going to talk about that, but here's why I want to break right now. Not all of us grew up with trustworthy hands in our life. Some of us in this room maybe were spanked as a child, Although my dad's hands were trustworthy, I did get spanked. I think it had more to do with my resistance as clay than his spanking. Some of us were hurt by other people. Some of us, it has nothing to do with hands necessarily, but that trust that we should have had nurtured as children was not nurtured. And we've grown up in pain, or maybe as an adult, you were betrayed, or you were hurt, or Maybe none of those things happened. You just don't see God as a good God because bad things have happened. So I want to do an exercise with you and your small groups. I did a very not seminary-worthy Bible study on the hands of God because what I did was go to the concordance, find every scripture I could find that talks about God's hands. So in seminary, you would take one or two verses and go through them to death until you'd gotten every single word you possibly could out of there. 
So I'm asking you as a group, and your group, you're so smart. You can figure out how to do this. You can give a couple verses to each person, or you can all read these. These are in your booklet here. I want you to read through, and you're going to do your own inductive Bible study on what God does with his hands. Because I want you to leave here today trusting God's hands, if nothing else. That this potter who is intimately working with your clay is a good God. So as you'll see, there are a ton of scripture verses, but you get a half an hour. That's the good news. This page right here, you see these four quadrants? I believe that every verse in there, and you may need to look up the context, you may know the context. Every verse has something to do with these four words. God's doing one of these things in these verses. And I used every verse I could find. So he's either blessing with his hands, he's disciplining with his hands, and discipline is what you do with your children, God's children, who are being willfully disobedient. He's punishing, and if you look in God's word, you can tell who he's punishing because they will be the people who are not his followers. They will be other tribes and nations who, who do not serve God. So he's either disciplining his children, he's punishing those who, who are not his followers, or he's protecting his children. So as a group, what you're going to do, you don't have to write down verses in here. You can just do hashtags or whatever, what are those things called? Yes, that. You can do that or just somehow designate how many verses go in the blessing box, how many go in discipline, punishment, protection. Any questions on that? While you're at it, share with each other one thing, if you have time, one thing God's teaching you this morning that you didn't know before you came to this retreat. You're not going to have to share that as a group, just, just in your small group. Let me pray for you as you do this. Lord, we want to trust you as a potter. We want to trust your hands that they are good and loving and don't want to harm us. Father, I pray for these women as they go into their small group time that this will be a bonding time, that they will get to know people they didn't know before, that they will trust them, that they will uh, fall in love with each other as friends and sisters in Christ. Lord, uh, give us a peaceful, restful time as we meet in small groups and help us to be punctual and to be back in 30 minutes. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.